Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The following podcast is a member of the Great Big Owl family. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you like listening to? Um... <laughs> chart music. <laughs> chart music. crazy youngsters and welcome to the final part of chart music fifth day i'm your host al needham and like you i am very worried about the news of the impending demise of bbc4 but then again if it meant this episode of top of the pulse was never repeated would that be a bad thing anyway let's get stuck into the final furlong come on march 1996 you're better than this surely here when this next band have a hit single they don't do top of the pops without us or else they made one of the best albums of last year they were nail varnished to die for all of them they are the mighty garbage Wiley, at the side of the stage, tells us that every time this band are on top of the pops, her and Lamac are presenting, and that they're all wearing nail varnish to die for. It's Stupid Girl by Garbage. Formed in Madison, Wisconsin in 1993 by Duke Erickson, Steve Marker and Butch Vig, the producer of Nevermind, Garbage started as an all-male group, but decided early on that they wanted a female singer in the Debbie Harry, Susie Sue, Chrissy Hind mould. After coming across a video for the Edinburgh band Angelfish on MTV, they saw a potential candidate, Shirley Manson. After getting in touch, they had a meeting in London on the night that it was announced that Kurt Cobain had committed suicide. During an Angelfish tour of America, Manson auditioned for the band, but it all went tits up. However, when Angelfish split up at the end of the tour, Manson tugged their coat for a second go, and this time she was invited to join. After putting out a demo tape, deliberately leaving off Vig's name, they were signed to Mushroom Records in the UK and Almo Records, an A&M offshoot, in the US. Their debut single, Subhuman, got to number 50 in August of 1995, but the follow-up, Only Happy When It Rains, got to number 29 in September of that year. 
This is the follow-up to Queer, which got to number 13 in December of 1995. It's the fourth cut from their debut LP, and it's smashed into the chart at number four as this week's highest new entry. Well, here we go again. The fourth release from an LP. Yeah, yeah. People don't give a shit about singles now. (laughs) But this is a rare example of transatlantic cross-pollination in 1996, isn't it? Americans and British keeping their distance from each other in, in many instances. Yeah. Top of the pops in this era. They're, they're pulling out all the stops to try and make this sort of thing exciting, aren't they? There's a yeah. you know, crisscross of searchlights, there's swooping camera angles, there's a barrage of camera cuts. But, you know, as an observer, it just makes me feel that a, a sense of wonderment at what the suite and imagination would have looked like yeah. with this much care and attention. Too right. Too right. And, and uh, you know, all of that movement really showcases what a dreary fucking song this is. The highest new entry, man. Fucking hell. Well, I know they've baked in their own kind of uh, any critique because they've called themselves garbage. Um, mm. Of course, they should have been called rubbish. But, I mean, they're just one of those mm. bands where I, I just wondered, you know, where is the struggle here? I'm not saying every band has to do the get in the van years of obscurity. And I'm sure that it was, um, if, if that tactic of leaving Butch Vig's name off the demo hadn't worked, his mm. name would have fucking got on that demo almost as soon as possible. <laughs> um, mm. But here's a band with an Uber producer in the ranks, and they instantly seem like just a more marketable kind of um, grunge-flecked version of shit like Curve and Republica. That's stuff with a vaguely mm. dancey beat. But when you actually concentrate, you realise that the songs are, are, are dull as fuck. No matter how glistening mm. and perfect and gleaming the framing is. I mean, I have problems with Butch Vig as a producer anyway, because never mind, which he was so famously produced, I don't like the sound much of that record. Um, I think he made mm. it, it didn't, didn't play, uh, do it great. I mean, he did great favours for Nevada, of course. But I didn't think I'd written anything about Garbage, but it turns out I did go and see him live, Wolverhampton Civic Hall, in 96, just Ooh. as this record was becoming a big hit. And if I may, I'd just like to read the first paragraph of the review. Go ahead. Yeah, it says, um, Come the glorious day, brothers and sisters, when anarchist revolution sweeps through the music industry, when we string up the wellers with the guts of the Kravitzes, when we set fire (laughs) to the EMI stag and waste the linen-suited rats who emerge squealing one by one, as we turn the canals into Tower Records and watch all that history float away, the first up against the wall to receive instant justice will be that select cabal known as the Uber producers, that little crew of black-clad professionals youth flood melly hooper how we fucking be always first to be drafted in when a serious artiste wants to perfect that hip 90s sheen or when some tired old duffer needs to reinvest it reinvest their dated trek with a vague sense of contemporaneity all those cunts responsible for keeping you two going the enemies of pop never forget it now that was the first paragraph of the review obviously angry uh, well had Angry young, Angry young man. man. Hadn't mentioned the music, Ooh. but I'll still stand by that. I don't really like Butch Vig. I do think this is the definitively uber producer type band. And, and yeah. reminding myself of it now, those fucking lyrics are appalling. Shirley's voice is nothing special. They were, I mean, no. what they are is essentially, um, sort of outsider alternative music for non outsiders. It's alternative yes, music yeah. for pretty people. Do you know what I mean? People are already mm. popular. So if, Kurt Cobain had massively predicted um, the way that grunge what would become commodified, and that's probably what appalled him so much. Um, here's where it ends up. 
it's fully at this point those moves in the early 90s have fully gone through the industry's digestive system and this is the shit that comes out the other end so this is uber producer rock and it it leaves me stone cold just as it did then really Simon, counterpoint. <laughs> You're not going to get a counterpoint from me. <laughs> oh. um, I had forgotten how much I despise garbage until I reacquainted myself with this song uh, on this episode. Um, and I don't only dislike them in a private, internal way. I dislike them in a way that I'm looking around and judging <laughs> that if anyone else likes garbage, I don't trust you. I don't trust your motives and what you think pop is and what you, how you think it works if you like them. And included in that, I'm including our own David Stubbs, right? <gasps> Here's what David Stubbs... Scrap, scrap, David scrap. Stubbs was into it. He was on board with this. Uh, so <laughs> really? In, in 1995, this is what David Stubbs wrote. He said, This is as black as an oil slick, but just as smooth and slippery. This tickles, teases, and confronts at the same time. This <gasps> is garbage, and just the drop of the dark stuff Pop's Melting Pot needs right now. Get a oh, grip, Lord. David Stubbs of 1995. First no, Abba and then this. I know, right? Um, no, I, I, I really dislike them. Um, and uh, it's Neil kind of touched upon it where he said there was no struggle. Now, I'm not somebody who believes that everybody has to have an authentic backstory. Far from it. I'm not somebody who believes that music needs authenticity. But what um, really, really uh, disgusts me about Garbage is that they try to have it both ways, mm, right? Yeah. Now, they are obviously very fake, um, and I'm not just saying that because they're a studio project made by one super producer and his producer mates, although that is part of it. Um, uh, but it is because uh, they essentially, much like B.A. Robertson, in fact, they are people who hate pop. Now, some would say they are pop, and all pop is fake, what you're getting so worked up about. Now, that, that almost works as a sort of mind trick. But that statement, <laughs> it's like one of those... Right, you know, you get these people who say, oh, the so-called tolerant left aren't so tolerant, are they? When, when, <laughs> when, when someone on the left is calling out intolerance. It's one of those debating gambits that crumbles at the first prod. Because the thing that garbage are faking... Is authenticity. They don't have the balls Mm. to be out and out pop. They're disingenuous. They're trying to sell a very anti-pop idea of depth and heft, but it's completely fabricated and has no substance to back it up. They're so desperately ordinary and middle-brow that basically um, they are a studio downtime downtime project of people who've never had one interesting idea. That the opinions they have are all the kind of default alternative opinions of anybody of that era. So, for example, Stephen Wells, who we mentioned already on this uh, episode, mm. uh, yeah. uh, interviewed them and uh, uh, told them that um, their second album reminded him of Erasure and Pet Shop Boys. And they were horrified. They're going, Ugh, how can you say that? That's crap. Yes. Right? Do you know what I mean? So that, that just tells you everything about the kind of people they were. They're the sort of bands who would consider pop to be mindless commercial pap. And really, they're playing such a safe game. It's so fucking focus-grouped, yeah, this. Yeah. Everything mm-hmm. about them. Um, I, I, for, for a start, the kind of um, persona that, that she gives over, I've always hated that kind of unearned superiority of women who think that wearing Dr. Martins instead of high heels makes them privy to some greater truth. Yeah. And it's actually a very unsisterly thing that they actually hate. They basically hate loads of other women for, for, for not, not being that kind of default, sulky, default alternative 
person that they're congratulating themselves for mm. becoming. And that's right here in this song. It really is. Because this song, uh, it sets up, you know, stupid girl, you know, we're, we're almost like, huh, yeah, well, we, we all know that girl, don't we? Huh? Stupid girls, girls who are stupid. <laughs> uh, you know, we can all chuckle along. And it's, it's a fucking circular and self-fulfilling thing. Yeah, stupid girl is stupid by definition. And so essentially what they've done, they've set up a straw man or straw woman or straw girl. Um, somebody to other. They've set up somebody to other. Somebody who, in the lyrics, pretends to be high or bored, doesn't believe in fear or faith. Do you know, they don't sound like the worst person to me. I'll just say that as an aside. <laughs> um, so all they project is that kind of um, superiority. And, yeah, just just everything about... It's, it's so on the nose as well, right? The song about stupid girl, they call it stupid girl, right? Mm. They had a song about androgyny. They called it androgyny uh, they, they, they wrote a satire of someone who's only happy when it rains and they called it only happy when it rains and you know queer queer and all that kind of stuff so they're so so uninteresting and uh, just everything about them is um, superficially something that people in the 90s were meant to buy into this idea that we've done away with all the artifice of the past and now uh, we want mm. something a bit dark and a bit real mm. but they're doing it by copying um, little bits from here and there. So, for example, bits of trip hop. And I know trip hop is a phrase Neil rightly has a problem with because mm. hip hop is a trip. Yeah. But push, putting yes. that to one side for a minute, the stuff that we know as trip hop is something that garbage are drawing upon. There's a little bit of industrial in there, but it's soft industrial. Mm. It's three-inch nails. <laughs> <laughs> and they're, they're hacks. They are Toya and Hazel O'Connor. That's what she is, you know. Yeah. I, I, I really do think that. And so I know it's wrong to judge people based on their age and to say that old people can't make pop, but I do think it's mm. relevant that uh, one of them was in their late 30s, uh, Butch Vig's 41 at this point, the guitarist is 45, um, mm. and they do look like dads who've been yeah. allowed by their 14-year-old daughter to come to a Bullet For My Valentine gig <laughs> so they can drive them home at the end. So yeah. they're, 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 they're wearing their kind of, they've dusted off their alternative clothes um, to be on yeah. top of the pops. And and I I think that is quite telling. Um, oh, by the way, again, um, I, I I'm going to hip, hypocritically say you shouldn't judge people by appearances while doing so. But Duke, <laughs> Duke Erickson is uh, the chinless one. His fucking soul patch is just awful. It just only emphasises mm. his lack of a chin. <laughs> and, and and I, I but I, I I do think it points to how calculated the whole thing is because it's basically older muso blokes. And I've got nothing nothing against musicians fucking love musicians where would we be without musicians but mm. musos is a whole different category mm. it's mm. older oh, yes. muso blokes who've decided to get a younger glamorous female singer to front up the whole thing the whole project and it is a project mm. and you know so uh, again they're all in black she's in a pink frock with black riding boots so in the same way that johnny from menswear and rick from shed seven are the sort of focal point of it all it's it's very calculate and probably the correct thing to do like you know don't look at these guys because you suddenly yeah. realize that it's a keep bunch away of... from the dads yeah yeah mm. absolutely i just remember in terms of how how much of a kind of uh, calculated uh, project the whole thing was um, mushroom records actually uh, put on a boat trip to launch them uh, on the thames because right. ipc's headquarters was nearby and of course we went along me and taylor because there was free drink and everything and you know <laughs> uh, we they you know, we were soulless hacks. Yeah, yeah, well, fucking course we were, but we were skimp. What yeah. are you gonna do? But it was it was just so obvious that the whole thing was like it had been decided in advance that this very calculated project 
was going to be sold to um, middle brow Brits and middle brow Americans mm. uh, with this kind with this kind of fake sheen of alternative credibility over it, and uh, I despised it. And as I say, I really judge people who bought into it. Yeah, I mean, I don't mind any kind of contrivance in pop. It's an art form. I expect it to be contrived. What I can't stomach is the contrivance of authenticity, which is what bands like Garbage are all about. Anything else to say about this? Yeah, actually. Um, oh, God. God. <laughs> Garbage really tried to stitch up um, a Melody Maker photographer. Oh, uh, God, yeah. yeah. Oh, really? Um, yeah, there's um, a photographer called Pat Pope who uh, uh, worked at Melody Maker at the same time as us. Uh, lovely guy. Um, not yeah. doing very well at the moment, health-wise, but um, I hope he's uh, oh, ho- hanging yeah, on in there. Yeah, Pat. best wishes, Pat, if this gets back Yeah, well, to soon, Pat. Um, but what happened was that uh, he'd, he'd taken a bunch of photos of Garbage uh, in the 90s. And um, uh, in 2015, I think it was, Garbage wrote to Pat uh, informing him of their intent to use his photos in a photo book, in a book, but with no payment, just, in inverted commas, proper credit. Now, uh, he wrote an open letter taking apart their stance on copyright and it became a bit of a sort of course celebrity at the time. And there was even a story about it in The Guardian where he says, free requests have become more and more commonplace. Back in the day, yeah, it was more about... I remember that. It was back, it was back in the day, it was more about working cheap with a promise of big money when the band sold. But it didn't work out that way because Garbage uh, became very successful. They had plenty of resources, Pat says, to pay for images. And he goes, I've many times been paid something by tiny bands or bands with no money, payment in these cases is often minimal and more symbolic. If Garbage had personally come to me with a limited budget, chances are I would have agreed. It's more about principle than cash grabbing. Garbage had been incredibly vocal in the past about how everybody should pay for music and how artistry should be respected. This was too much hypocrisy uh, on their part. And for content providers everywhere, whatever their profession, something had to be said. So, yeah, he, he wrote this letter, it made it public, put it on Facebook and said, I'm proud of my work. I think it has a value. If you don't think it has any value, don't use it, which is a really good point. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm saying no to a budget that says you can take my work for free and make money out of it. Um, so uh, Garbage then wrote back to him and, you know, sort of, we're all deeply saddened to read your Facebook post, blah, blah, blah. And uh, um, they have a, a different interpretation, which was that, having already paid you in 1995 for the entire sheet, blah, blah, blah. So as far as they're concerned, uh, they, they own these photos. They didn't expect mm. such a, a hostile reception. And then they start to sort of get the world's smallest violin out. They start saying, as an independent band on our own label, we are struggling to juggle the harsh realities of the modern music. Oh, is. right. Bear in mind, this band have sold millions and millions of records. Butch Fig mm. is impossibly rich already. And all of this mm. stuff, all you yeah. know. So essentially, and then they start trying to invoke Amanda Palmer's book, The Power of Asking, saying, oh, you know, we just asked, you know, and you could have said no. Any refusal of permission, they say, would be respectfully accepted with no further questions asked and so on. So, you know, this this became a bit of a debating point for a little while. Um, The book, that book did come out without Pat's photos in it. And the book retailed for 42 quid. Fuck. (laughs) You are not telling me you could not afford to slip Pat Pope a few quid for those photos. Fuck off. So the following week, Stupid Girl dropped six places to number 10. The follow-up, Milk, got to number 10 in November of this year, and they'd have 12 more top 40 hits before splitting up for the first time in 2005. And this is from a band, and I've got another quote here, Steve Marker from Garbage, saying that what they wanted to do was take pop music and make it as horrible sounding as we can. 
I think oh, fuck that, that is a shit ambition. But well done. In a way that you never intended, you did make rock music <laughs> sound as horrible as you could. Of course, he's home with the big names, but this is the first time we've had a world champion in the house. Be afraid, be very afraid, and witness the blessed union of Prince Nazim and the Khalifs. Manchester in 1992 by two lads from Rochdale called Mush Khan and Jabba Khan who formed the breakdancing crew Dizzy Footwork after seeing the Rock Steady crew perform at the Runcorn Ideal Homes exhibition 10 years earlier. Khalifs were managed by Martin Price of 808 State who, according to legend, was jumped in by the group before they let him manage them, breaking his nose in the process. <laughs> After performing at that year's In The City Music Seminar in 1992 and having their demos played by Pete Tong on Radio 1, they were signed to London Records a year later and their debut LP, Vibe The Joint, scraped into the charts at number 100 in April of 1994. Their last two singles have lingered in the lower reaches of the top 100, but in this instance, they've been given the rub by none other than Prince Nassim Hamed, the current WBO featherweight champion, who debuted the single last Saturday during his entrance to the fight with Saeed Lawal in Glasgow as he retained his title with a two-punch 35-second knockout after he descended from a crane to the old Spice music. (laughs) The single comes out this week, and here they are in the studio. They say it's the first time they've had a world champion on Top of the Pops. No, 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 no. I believe it was Brett the Hitman Hart when uh, they did the video for Slam Jam. All right. Ah, yeah. I, see, yeah, yeah. I will say it's yeah. uh, it's it's nice of Khalifs to give the unknown guest vocalist exposure <laughs> yes. to their millions of fans. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and in one fell swoop, there are more Asian people on stage than in the entire eighties, really. Yeah. Um, yeah. it's remarkable. I loved Khalifs early on. Um mm. earlier I loved five... uh, It has to be said that Jabba Khan is the greatest breakdancer <laughs> name ever. <laughs> He probably got no shit from anybody when uh, I Feel For You came out. (laughs) Jabba and those original members, they were lovely people. And they got in touch with me pretty rapidly as soon as they'd started. Because I think I wrote about them pretty quickly. And I loved Find Mm. a Joint as a single. And also Hang Them High. I thought they were great. Um, But they proved after those singles, uh, frustratingly sporadic really. Um, I was actually called up to Seeker Leafs in the early part of 1996. I was called up to their studios in Manchester um, Mm. to uh, hear about what they were doing. They wanted a new biog writing for some new material that they were doing. And um, I went up there, met them, did the interview. And they said, yeah, you might want to go and chat with the guy who's managing us now. And um, went to the next room and there's Pete Waterman. Um, right, just just sat there, and you know, I was astonished um, that it was him. Didn't surprise yeah. me because he's—I'm not saying Pete Waterman's always been at the cutting edge, but he has supported kind of little underground acts here and there over the course of his career. And oh, I he start- was one of the early mentors of the specials, wasn't Coventry, he? Coventry, yeah. in it, Coventry, big, behind big, everything. big, 
Coventry DJ, you know, an essential part of the Coventry music scene. So, I think yeah, I think one of the members said, yeah, he, he tried to make uh, tried to make Terry do some hip swinging dance. It was it was most <laughs> unsavoury. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, you know, Pete always had an eye on the charts. And I think what he was trying to do with Khalifs at that period was slightly soften their edges a little bit. Um, yes. Interpolate some more R&B influences into their sound. And that would prove in, in later years to almost be their undoing. Because what was good about Khalifs was just that they were a bit of a riot. They were essentially a British onyx, weren't well, they? Well, this is it, yeah. yeah. And, and, and yeah. as an earlier, you know, as an Asian kid, and I wasn't even a kid then, I was 21, 22, but hearing lines like, yeah, I'm no pacifist, I'm a pistol-packing packy fist, it's just fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> to hear that, it's just it's just righteous to hear that. Um, mm. For frowny twenty four year old me, I dug things like on the on the Asian side of things, if you like things like Fundamental and Hustlers HC more. They're a bit more political, but it yeah. but it was fantastic. This performance, I remember um, seeing just Asian kids finally stepping up and, and dominating the top of pops stage. I think with Khalees, mm. the trouble was. Perhaps like me, they were a little bit too impolite to gain anything from the new Asian cool fang that was that was banging around at the time, which seemed to yeah. benefit the polite likes of Nitin, Sawney and the like, the people who were kind of slightly less political. But it was really gratifying mm. to see these guys. Um, I mean, not only because if you watch Top of the Pops or, or listen to pop music radio, you'd really only have the apprehension that British hip hop was being made in London. Um, yeah. And this just wasn't the case. So, you know, Manchester Hip Hop, Ruthless Rap Assassins, Crispy Three, yes. Jeep Beat Collective and MC Tunes and, and you know, the Caloose as well. And, and, you know, over in Yorkshire, you had Brain Tax and Breaking the Illusion. So it was, it was brilliant to see yes. these things um, on top of the pots. And just brilliant to see Prince Naz because he's dressed yes. like Mark Morrison. And, <laughs> you know, but the thing is, the thing is, the thing is I always liked about Naz was that, yes, he could doubtless issue a, a, a beat down on your ass. But yeah. he also had that kind of, um, just like all Asian boys, he's spoiled by his mum. Do you know what I mean? He just felt <laughs> that, that he would rather, rather than be in some long training camp that might have extended his career and given him a few more belts and made him a proper, I don't know, legendary fighter. I just think he, once he'd made his money, he just wanted to get, he, he just wanted to stay at home and have his mum feed him jillaby now and then. And just, yes. you know, you know, just, so I always liked that about now. So even though this isn't one of my favourite Khalif's tracks at all, um, and it's, you know, it's, it's a fairly, it's almost a novelty record. It was just mm. gratifying, massively gratifying to see Asian people on stage on top of the pots, this show that I'd watched for so many years. It, it, was, it yes. was a good moment for that, for that reason. Yeah, and Prince Naz was a, a genuine mid nineties phenomenon, wasn't oh, he? God, yeah. A, a, yeah, a, totally. An out and proud Muslim. Yeah, who people liked. Everyone liked him. He was, you know, everyone goes on about Oasis being working class heroes, but he was yeah. more so. Yeah, but this his, is his it. ambition. I remember but, reading an interview. His ambition was to just go around his mum and dad's house with a bag full of half a million pounds <laughs> and just dump it on the coffee table and walk off. Yeah, you just think, yeah, I, I get that. Yeah, yeah, I like it. I, I quite like him, right? Um, He's—I'll explain this—but he's a lion bell end, right? And uh, <laughs> yes. what it is, right? Danny yes. Baker and Danny Kelly used to talk about lion Judas and chicken Judas, chicken Judas, in, yeah. in a football context. And what it is, it's like when a footballer leaves your club for your deadly rivals, and their new team comes to your place. If that player's on the pitch and they front it out. And mm. they face the hatred. They're a lion Judas. But if they yeah. feign an injury and swerve the game, they're a chicken yeah. Judas, right? Yes. Mm. Well, Naz, 
Naz was a lion bellend. He's a massive bellend, and he knows it, and he owns it. He's a flashy fucker, and I like yeah. it. Right, I think I think Neil has written about the experience, and correct me, but this might have been in your book, Eastern Spring, or it might have been somewhere else. But I remember you writing something to the effect that growing up as an Asian kid in Britain, you were never cool, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Black, black kids got to be cool, Asian kids did not, right? Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And, and, um, Obviously, I'm I'm in no position to know this firsthand, but I just remember sort of, in, in, uh, similar to what you just said about Khalifs, um, I remember sort of imagining that Prince Nassim Hamed gave Asian kids a bit of swagger. Absolutely. So, mm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, completely. You know, in the same way that in the eighties for me, I was you know you're reaching around. So it was people like Cyril Regis for me that fucking just just seeing somebody that mm. confident was so inspirational. And I'm sure in the nineties for Asian kids, seeing Prince Naz would have been just as important. Yeah, so this is the era where Asian kids were finally allowed to be hard bastards. Yeah, it was like when I was growing up in the eight seventies and eighties, the black kids, their parents had gone through so much shit, Mm. and their Mm. attitude was, "When I'm not having that, that isn't that isn't for me." But the Asian kids I used to know at school were still really timid. Yeah, and keep your head down. Yeah, and it wasn't until the nineties where that generation of Asian kids were like, "Yeah, don't fuck with me." Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so, Naz was the was the was like the figurehead of that. Absolutely, he was right. And and I, and so even if you thought he was a bit of an annoying prick or whatever, you had to hand it to him. You you had to say, "Good for you." You know, being an annoying prick and swaggering about, but as a working class well, Muslim, well, just just being a boxer, you know, yeah, being a boxer, yeah. but like a, a working class Muslim becoming the second richest British boxer of all time and getting into the the Forbes list of the richest sports people on earth. Uh, you know, you've got to fucking hand it to. I mean, obviously, it wasn't perfect. There was that car crash that caused serious injury to another driver. But yeah. even on that, I quite liked how flashy he was for bombing around in a three hundred grand silver <laughs> McLaren Mercedes in the first place in fucking Yorkshire. You know. <laughs> what what I love about this though, right? Um, obviously, Nas doesn't have to do much on this record. But no. when when the call came in. Um, do you reckon, uh, and maybe it was Pete Waterman or, or somebody, yeah. their agent, must have said to them, uh, uh, guys, I've got something amazing. Naz wants to collaborate with you. And they're like, whoa, yes. they're like, whoa, <laughs> Illmatic. I love Illmatic, man. Like, you know, their manager's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I, I defer to Neil here in how well regarded they were. But I certainly got the impression, to the extent that I dip my toe into this kind of thing, that they were well regarded. And mm. yeah, okay, maybe this record is them selling out for one single only. Mm. But you know, yeah. most of their stuff was all right. Um, it's this is a it's pretty lame, flimsy nineties R and B. This track, and um, yeah, the the way the way they've come out dressed, it's a bit E seventeen. Like they're doing yeah. that thing where they have the top button done up. But all the other buttons open, which is very boy band at the time. Mm, but obviously, mm. that boy band thing was ripped off from American hip hop culture in the first place. So it all sort of has its roots in that. One of them's got a big blue shirt and tie and braces, like he's a like he's a, he's a Wall Street broker having his Friday night cocktails. I quite <laughs> yes. like that. Uh, uh, yeah, you've you got you've got Naz in a leather waistcoat, like you said, and bare chest underneath it, uh, as, as he would if mm. you had a body like him, you know. But yeah, yeah like yeah. you say, yes. like and no one's gonna laugh at him because he's. He's the hardest kid at school, isn't he? He's basically, yes, yeah, yeah. you don't fuck yeah. with the hardest kid at school. <laughs> this is the only time that I've ever seen Prince Naz actually keeping his guard up. <laughs> because he's got the mic right up to his face, so he can't see that he can't actually mime to his own record. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And he hasn't even got to do much. He's got hardly any lyrics. And he sticks his finger out while he's rapping, which makes it look like he's making a Hitler moustache. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which is a bit odd. The thing is, it sounds like a corny thing. 
but he smiles throughout this performance. And I yeah. know that might sound like a little thing, but he's like the only person on this episode of Top of the Pops, apart from Khalees themselves, who seem to be fucking enjoying himself. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, and here yeah. we have what we've been told that Oasis are working class, and what have they done with their appearance? They've turned up in scruffy clothes and they've looked pretty mm. miserable. Here's a, yeah. a properly working class guy dressed like. I don't know, a superhero almost. They're very Mark Morrison, I think. I think Mark Morrison was exerting an influence at this time. Yeah. But, you know, bare-chested, just looking fucking amazing and enjoying it. That's the main thing. Yes. And, and, and yeah. that, that comes across. The quality of the record is sort of near the, neither here nor there. You're coasted along by their enthusiasm. Khalees yeah. were almost a definitive band where you've got at least six superfluous members who probably don't do anything <laughs> on this record. Yeah. But, to fill the stage with that much. Finally, we've got some fucking energy. Do you know what I mean? We're, yeah, we're, yeah. Yes. we're not we're not just being cool. We've got some energy. So it's a really good good moment in the show. I think. And yeah, he, he hasn't got to do much. He just goes, put put up your hands, Prince is in the house. Yeah. Obviously, I wish Prince was in the fucking house. <laughs> but um, the rest of the lyrics, though, I mean, Jesus Christ, they don't bear much scrutiny. No. One of them goes, um, I'll make your whole world crumble like a biscuit. Don't risk it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> fucking hell. Yeah. I mean, and it, and it samples, I mean, the title, the, the, the walk like a champion, talk like a champion. That's that's a lift from uh, Champion by Buju Banton, which came out uh, the previous year. And there's a there's a sample of sorts of all this love that I'm giving by Gwen McRae. And there's a bit of George Benson guitar style mixed mm. in, but it's it's not actual samples. It's it is very light. It's easy to forget because because Nas has kind of disappeared. Really, yeah, yeah, he has. Um, completely disappeared. It's easy to forget how Yuji was. It's easy to forget yeah. that you know, a matter of this is it this year that I think he is referenced on on Nas's rather sh- the re- you know the other Nas Nas mm. as in Illmatic Nas. Um, he's referenced on the Nas track from um, his album from this year, as I recall. So he's mm. big. He's got a sort of global yeah. fame. So yeah. this is a big deal. And it goes on nearly 10 times longer than his last fight, <laughs> but 30 minutes less than his usual entrance. Um, you sort of imagine as well that he was genuinely, underneath all that bravado, excited to be on top of the pop. Yeah. Because, yeah, you know, he's won fucking world titles and got more money than God. But he would have grown up the same as all of us, watching Top of the Pops. And this is a yeah. brand new frontier for him. He wouldn't have made this record if he didn't think, oh, you know what? I might get on top of the pops. Mm. And all those fuckers at school, yeah, yeah, they've seen me box. Now they're going to see me on fucking top of the pops as well. Yeah, yeah, it's new territory for him. And he probably would have loved that. He would have. And he's totally confident about it. I mean, obviously, you know, if you're going to go stand in a ring for 15 rounds and get the shit beaten out of you, this poses no problems whatsoever. And he just does it with a plum, I think. He does it with joy. And it's just a reminder of what can be great about top of the pops is performances like this. Even though I'm not going to want to listen to the record. I love this moment. I think it's the, for me, it's the highlight of the show. Yeah, I'd love to be able to say, well, this led to all those Asian acts that we'd then see on Top of the Pops. But no, this is pretty much it for another until Top of the Pops' death. Yeah, I mean, Asian visibility in British pop was pretty low. I mean, uh, on the indie scene, yeah, you had like Mm. Echo Belly and Corner Shop and stuff like that. Mm. Uh, But in terms of actually breakthrough acts, having top 10 hits or whatever, I guess, I can't remember what year it was that Apache Asian started having hits. But yeah, yeah, White Town later on, but it was pretty low back in the uh, in in the eighties. Um, what you had Sheila Chandra in Monsoon, yeah. and well, I don't know what else. I guess you can count Freddie Mercury, but nobody thought of Freddie as Asian no. today. Uh, so so yeah, I, I including can himself, this, this, yeah, including himself, yeah. Well, but, but these guys, these so th- this must have been a huge. These moment. guys are out and proud. 
and um, about it. Yeah. So yeah, it was it was it, it was a great moment that obviously never got followed up. But when you've got somebody like Prince Naz in your corner, as it were, it's great that they used him for this moment and the, and this yeah. moment that's in the memories of a lot of us. The, this moment on top of the pops, this performance by Cliffs is as memorable to a lot of Asian people as the first time we watched like Goodness Gracious Me and stuff like that. It's a yeah. moment. Really? It's, I know that sounds daft. But seeing no, seeing your own, it's a silly little. It's a little thing, but seeing your own kind on telly makes a difference. And I and I, and I think sure, this probably yeah. made a big difference to a lot of kids at that time. So the following week, Walk Like a Champion entered the chart at number twenty three, and then dropped eighteen places to number forty one. It wasn't good enough for London Records, and Khalifs were dropped, but were immediately picked up by Jive, and they changed their name to Khalif linked up with Pete Waterman, and their follow-up, a reworking of The Strangler's Golden Brown, got to number 22 in December of this year. And they'll have one more hit with Sands of Time, which got to number 26 in January of 1998, before they split up. One of the weirdest nights of my life was actually being on a bed with this woman who was Prince Naz's ex, oh my God. watching him lose that fight against the Mexican bloke. Wow, fucking hell. Absolutely screaming for him to have the shit beat now. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't, I didn't ask. <laughs> Tilly Steele. And I'm Helen Monks. And this is Bitchin'. I'm dyslexic. Yeah, why do you read the Wikipedia page? <laughs> it's good to practice. Yeah. A podcast where every week we talk about a different person. So how old was he when he first popped on the scene? That's a great If question. you say he was my age, I'm gonna <laughs> fucking die. And we veer wildly off track. Pop that Prosec. <laughs> Available on all your podcast apps. That's not right. Can you not say er in the advert? (laughs) Available on all your podcast platforms. Just search Bitchin' or Great Big Owl. We'll see you there. That was all right. (laughs) One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, It's a a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. What a star! Now the UK's top ten favourite singles. You may or may not agree. And for number ten, you saw menswear doing a fine performance earlier on with Being Brave. And number nine, the Beatles with Real Love. Shed Seven won the show earlier, going for gold at number eight. 
coming home now by Boyzone at number seven. Number six, Mark Morrison, Return of the Mac. At number five, give me a little more time from Gabrielle. Number four, also on the show earlier, Garbage with Stupid Girl. Number three, Oasis and Don't Look Back in Anger. And at number two, Robert Miles. And now that famous rhetorical question, how deep is your love? Oh, it's deep, Steve, very deep. The third week at number one, take that R, top of the box. After Wiley tells us that you may or may not agree with this week's top ten, seeing as it's practically the only thing Top of the Pops can't tinker with, (laughs) we're treated to some very awkward sexual chemistry before they introduce this week's number one, How Deep Is Your Love, by Take That. Formed in Manchester in 1989 when Nigel Martin-Smith the manager of Damien, whose cover of the Time Warp had just got to number seven, decided to create a British response to new kids on the block and was introduced to a club singer called Gary Barlow. Kick It was put together after a series of auditions around the Greater Manchester area and they made their first TV appearance under the name Take That on The Hitman and Her in 1990. Their debut single, Do What You Like, flopped in the summer of 1991, probably due to the fact that the video was allegedly banned from daytime television due to the shots of the band being a bit gay with jelly. But the follow-up, Promises, got to number 38 in November of that year. They notched up two top ten hits in 1982 with It Only Takes a Minute and A Million Love Songs and went over the top in 1993 when Could It Be Magic got to number three in January, Why Can't I Wake Up With You got to number two in February and Pray, Relight My Fire and Babe all went straight in at number one. They would notch up two more number ones in 1994 and another two in 1995, but all was not well in Take That Land after Robbie Williams started knocking about with Oasis and started demanding that they toughen their sound up, which led to him leaving slash being asked to leave before their world tour in July of 1995. Undaunted, their next single, Never Forget, went straight in at number one in August of that year and they planned to work on their next LP immediately after the tour. But over the Christmas period, they sat down and decided to split up. After rumours spread of their impending demise when it was announced that their next LP would be a greatest hits compilation, they finally broke their silence five weeks ago when they announced that they were splitting up, which led to Childline receiving an uptake in calls and the Samaritans advertising their phone number on the Piccadilly Circus billboard. This is the follow-up to Never Forget, a cover of the BG single that got to number three for five weeks in December of 1977 and January of 1978, and it went straight in at number one two weeks ago, dislodging Don't Look Back in Anger. And as Top of the Pops don't want to show the video, featuring a scary model who has them tied up in a cellar, then sticks a fork in Gary Barlow's neck, then drives him to a quarry and then murders Gary... Here's a repeat of their performance from two weeks ago. In, um, in Candide by Voltaire, Voltaire's satire of religious faith, there's a character called the Old Lady. She's uh, the maid of Cunigonde, who's the main love interest. 
mm-hmm. in the story. And uh, this old lady um, has got only one buttock. Uh, it, um, <laughs> the other one had been eaten by cannibals uh, when she was young. And that becomes a plot point in Candide uh, when they consider escaping on horseback because uh, she can't because she only has one buttock. Um, mm. Anyway, um, even the old lady from Candide by Voltaire is less half-arsed than Take That's <laughs> cover of How Deep Is Your Love. Yes, yes, yeah. Why are they going out with such a weak cover version? There were rumours about why they did this, mm-hmm. um, about how Back For Good, or was it uh, Never Forget actually itself, mm were written by the Bee Gees, but they kept it secret. Right. Um, and the Bee Gees only wrote them uh, so that, uh, not so that, uh, on the understanding that uh, take that would do a Bee Gees cover eventually. But uh, I suspect that's probably BS. But I remember those rumours coming out, like even before this, this, this came out. And I remember yeah. also Gary Barlow saying that they chose to do a cover version because he thought they hadn't done one for a long time and it was important that the band prove that they could take a classic song and do it justice. Um, I mm. suspect, the reason they did this, um, which is a weird way to go out, you know, a, a, ba- weird. a really weird way uh, for a band who, yeah, I mean, the helplines, the childline, the fact that, you know, four people killed themselves when Robbie, Robbie Williams left Take That. Only two mm. people killed themselves when Take That split itself, which is telling yeah. in itself. But um, I think this is basically a nailed on number one because everyone knows. Yeah, well, they could have shit in a bucket. Yeah, and, and yeah. put that out. It's and a it nail on number one, one. But, it, it, but it's also kind of the job of this record. I think this is Gary Barlow setting himself up in a lineage and suggesting he might be a pop star. The Kens don't really do much on this record. Never forget, mm. don't forget, sort of spotlit Howard a little bit. This doesn't. Yeah. Um, Robbie's yeah. gone. Fans will have been dreading this moment. We don't yet know that Robbie's going to be a star. So this record is kind of, yeah, Barlow saying, you know, not I am the future that take that, but I am a competent pop performer. I can do this. Yeah. But this record, it's so fucking boring. It's it is, to isn't strip it? back really dull take of a great song, a really great yeah, song. Yeah, you can't you can't top the Bee Gees on this. You can't. No. You just can't. Yeah, the original's beautiful, utterly beautiful, mm. and and it's, it's transcendently sugary. The original by the yeah. the Bee Gees. It's like yeah. it, it is like floating in a miasma of, of glucose in, in its gaseous form. But mm. th- this is just. <laughs> And it, uh, I mean that in, in a good way, in the same way that um, yeah. I'm not in love by 10CC. Yeah. Gives you the mm. same kind of feeling. Yeah. Th- this, it's just click track karaoke. Um, yeah. mm. They could not be asked writing in a new song, clearly. Yeah. Uh, any any songs Barlow had up his sleeve, he was saving. I mean, clearly, Never Forget is the way you go out, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, maybe. But I, I think the choice of song here is important. It's kind of asking fans, are you going to hold on for us? Are you going to stay loyal? Do you know what I mean? There's a there's yeah. a kind of how deep is your love? It's kind of interesting. How loyal are you, fans? Will you follow me? And I think the person saying that is Gary Barlow. Mm-hmm. Um, so after that, after they split, Barlow can now position himself as the kind of musical heart and soul of the band, the true talent of the band. Is, it must is have been argument. so weird being Gary Barlow because he was the talent of the band, but he was nobody's favourite. He was everybody's yeah. least favourite member. What a weird mm. position to be in, to be normally the front man of a band where most of the fans would put you bottom of a pole. And, and he, he knew that. And yeah. uh, um, famously, his, uh, his his solo tour didn't sell very well. I think he booked out Wembley Arena, just couldn't, couldn't fill it. Um, mm. So, uh. yeah, no, nobody wanted to know. And what you can tell from looking at this performance, all right, Robbie's already fucked off. The rest yeah. of them are visually already making a break for freedom, right? Yeah. Yeah. So you've got yeah. 
Barlow's hair is a bit Britpop in this. Uh, it's sort of cold yeah, he looks thing. so glummed up. The transformation from a few years ago is ridiculous. So he's gone for that kind of Britpop, comb forward, fringy thing. Uh, mm. You've got Mark Owen in a tank top. The, the original, that original meaning of a tank top, the knitwear meaning. Uh, yeah, over, over bare he looks skin. awful in that though. Yeah, over bare skin, which makes him look very Frank Spencer. I thought, um, <laughs> yes, even more, yeah. even more so than the education secretary Gavin Williamson looks Frank Spencer. Yes, um, <laughs> yeah, and, uh, yeah. Mark Owen, there's he's looking forward to the sort of solo career his mentor Davy Jones had. Yeah, yeah, isn't yeah. He? Mm-hmm. And then there's there's the work. Right, I I always get the, the two Kens mixed up. Howard yeah. and uh, and Jason, but Howard yeah. I believe is the dreadlocky one who. Um, uh, he looks like he should be dancing for Spiral Tribe at an illegal rave, playing a yes. bit of playing a bit of didgeridoo, maybe you know. And then you've got <laughs> Jason Orange, who literally looks like a Ken, as in a Ken doll. Uh, yes, he's very clean cut and clearly shaping up to go into acting, which is what he did. Not very successfully, but I, I saw him mm. in a play in a pub in Islington where he's trying to become a serious actor. So yeah, they, um, just just to look at, you can tell. They're already that their eyes are uh, looking for the exit, and they're all going mm, yeah. through different exits. Mm. I mean, yeah. the thing is, with the Spice Girls, say you did at least feel that their personalities battled. With 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 take that with Robbie gone, you just feel mm. that it's Barlow running things, and who would want to be in such a yeah. band? You know, you wouldn't. So, yeah, I mean that that yeah. changing look. I is mean, actually... do you think it was a mutual decision to split up, or was it Barlow going right? I've done like like Paul Weller did with the Jam. I don't think. Could you imagine somebody desperately continuing to want to work with Gary Barlow? I, I don't mm. think this. This might not have been a committee decision, but I'm I, I'm fairly sure nobody nobody objected in a sense. Um, um, you can see that change of look, by the way. If you look at the single sleeve for this, they all look like they're in an indie band or something. They're already starting yeah. to mm. depart stylistically from where they've been. Yeah, and yeah, Barlow. I I can believe he would have ended it actually because he had this kind of uh, deluded self belief that he could go on to be a kind of i don't know a sort of maybe not a sort of um barry manilow character or cliff richard but certainly like a very big middle of the road star and he didn't yeah. do that way he wasn't very good at it and out of all of them he's the one who needs take that more so when they got back together and of course yeah. the, the the reunion has gone from five members at one point down to fucking three um, he's the one who needs it. He, he, he's fucking clinging to that rock. Yeah. Um, obviously, he's not going to want to give away one of his songs. No, exactly. He's hanging on to him. Yeah, I, that, that's what I thought. Um, I, I noticed, it's very telling when, when you um, check out the um, reaction of the studio audience in this clip, is that, um, and I think it's Barlow who's just finished singing, and there's a bloke sitting on a stool playing a Spanish guitar solo. Mm. That's when the girls start screaming. Not, yeah. not a Barlow or any of the others. No. It's the fucking guitarist. No. Do you think Take That could have gone on for much longer? Because, I mean, Boyzone are already malingering in the top 10. But I contend that 80% of Take That is far better than a million percent of Boyzone. I think the era of the boy band, or that era of the boy band, was drawing to a close anyway. Um, you had mm. this, you know, the, the noughties was more of an era for girl groups, um, Sugar Babes and Girls Aloud. And I think yeah. they had to take that. They had to sort of discreetly... Uh, get away for a bit. Um, of course, there was Westlife, and uh, Westlife were Ugh. just, you know, they, they make take that look like fucking Motorhead. Um, but yeah. uh, they, they were the last gasp of that of that kind of 90s, noughties wave of boy bands, and take that actually had to bide their time and wait until they became figures mm. of nostalgia. And, you know, mm. they, they became sort of uh, hen party destination. And it worked out 
very lucratively for them, obviously. But uh, yeah, yeah I, I don't think they could have soldiered on. So the following week, How Deep Is Your Love was pushed off the top of the charts by Firestarter, by Prodigy. Oh, more boring dance bands have got <laughs> No personalities there, yeah. No. They played their final gig in Amsterdam two weeks after this broadcast and then went off to have solo careers in the shadow of Robbie Williams despite Gary Barlow's three number ones, but reformed ten years later and had four more number ones. Which has been offered outside by Prince Nassim, so the gloves are off, we're out of here. Good night. While Liam Lamac, finally surrounded by the kids who have been given their Marie Curie daffodils, have one last go at shilling Top of the Pops 2 before telling us they've been offered outside by Prince Nazim. Instead of getting to see that, unfortunately, we get Rock and Roll Star by Oasis. We've already covered Oasis in this fucking episode. (laughs) And here they are again performing a track from the LP Definitely Maybe in a repeat of their performance from Top of the Pops from the 8th of September 1994, when Top of the Pops was still doing their LP track section. But why are we seeing this? Well, it's a tie-in for the clip show Top of the Pops 2, which began on BBC Two in 1994, and commencing from September the 14th, 1995, with a repeat of the Rolling Stones doing Let's Spend the Night Together, Top of the Pops has chosen to close every episode with a clip from their not as extensive as they should be archives i mean i'm bored with fucking oasis i've got no interest in talking about them anymore but i hate this fucking song i hate this fucking song as well so let's talk about the archive stuff because already this year we've had clips of uptight everything's all right by stevie wonder maggie may by rod stewart oh boy by buddy ole Turn It On Again by Genesis, Rocket by Mud, and Happy Birthday by Altered Images. And, you know, in a pre-YouTube era, it was a very rare treat to see that sort of thing, wasn't it? I suppose so, yeah. But you wouldn't you wouldn't tune in mm. just to see, oh, I wonder what the last, you know, the little clip at the end's going to be, or whatever. I, I, I wonder, you know, you, you wouldn't... Yeah. I, I suppose Top of the Pops 2 was appealing to some of the same viewers who might previously have watched things like the rock and roll years in, in a previous decade. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like I say, we've gone from being yeah. underfed in pop tunes to being all popped out. Yeah. I can't remember many times of sitting of actually sitting down thinking, right, I'm gonna watch TOTP two. I found those little capsules real annoying they used to have. Yeah, yeah fucking man. you know, jokey yeah, capsules and it was uh, narrated by Steve yeah, it's Wright. Just like just play the fucking thing. Yeah. It was that NME voice. Or just repeat Top of the Popsers, which is what UK Gold was doing at the time. Right, yeah, yeah. and now it's what BBC actually does. Yeah, absolutely. This is no one off than putting Oasis on. They've also shown there's no other way by blur this year and to take that performances which no one really needed to see so soon again. But they're trying to remind us of the heritage of Top of the Pops. But in many cases, the bit at the end would be the best tune that you heard on on that entire episode which is massively counterproductive yeah it's like they're saying oh remember us when we were good <laughs> we were special a reminder of when top of the pops is good but you know what one of those heritage things was that was great about top of the pops the fucking audience mm. now just before this clip of oasis we finally get to see the audience yeah 
You know, their faces, that is. And actually, it's a lovely moment. I, I was getting major sort of clubbing flashbacks, if you like, because it is very nice, yeah. the stuff that they're wearing. And finally, yeah. we get to see the audience. We've, you know, being able to see some movement in the crowd during the audience. You know, the thing that Top of Pops used to do of having the camera moving through the crowd, showing a few dance moves, I don't know, something like that. But mm. the audience have been totally forgotten about in this black yeah. area, completely forgotten about. So instead of knocking these old fucking clips on, get a dance record on that people can dance to and let's see the audience for a bit. And I would have yeah. preferred that than yet yeah. another clip of Oasis. But, but yeah. you know, it mirrors the rest of the music media that year and in the mid-90s. Mm. Here's some more Oasis, here's some more Oasis, here's some more Oasis. Um, yeah. It's a very good yeah. point, actually, that lack of audience, because in a way that makes these performances um, as dead as, as if they were a whistle test. Uh, yeah, it's like it's yeah, like yeah. whistle test with added searchlights and smoke machines. But yeah. the great thing, as Neil says, about old top of the pops, and also you could go back to the sixties and look at Ready Steady Go. Ready Steady Go really mm. dwelt on the audience, did, or yeah. something like Soul Train. Go yeah. to America, Soul Train in the seventies. Yeah, fucking amazing, uh, and yeah. even more amazing now. Just this sense that everyone was in yeah. it together. Well, this is it. Al, I don't think that computes for somebody like Black Sill. I think for Black Sill, it's all about these amazing fucking legendary bands who can, what was the phrase? Rip the shit out of a guitar. Yeah. So who cares about the crowd? Yeah. I mean, the audience in Top of the Pops in 1996 is, is as important as the audience for Blankety Blank in 1982. <laughs> you know, they're there to just make yeah. noise. Yeah, and those noises... When, when they're told to. Yeah, and those noises don't seem to bear any relation to the music. But I mean, you know, with some of these no. bands, it would have been nice to see their fans. I'm not saying I want to look at Oasis fans, obviously, but, you mm. know, some sense of an audience. But the audience are essentially there as an extra little trebly filament of whooping and shrieking, and that's it. And that's their job. But putting Oasis on again after we've had Oasis when they shouldn't have been on in the first place, that's just offensive. It is. It is. Fucking Oasis. Fuck off! So Top of the Pops continued their tie-in with Top of the Pops 2 for another fortnight. Next week, it would be the Equals doing Baby Come Back. The week after that would be pretty vacant by the Sex Pistols. Then they put it on hold until September when they showed a clip of <sighs> Shaker Maker by Oasis. Mm. Fuck off! And then ran it all the way until February 1997 with a clip of Up Against the Wall by the Tom Robinson Band. And that is the end of this episode of Top of the Pops. And it also is the end of an era for Top of the Pops because in a few months' time, Top of the Pops would move to Friday and start to die. Yeah, that's it. That's it. End times. And frankly, by that period, who cared? Mm. On TV afterwards, well, BBC One piles into Peggy Mitchell's birthday party in EastEnders, followed by Alien Empire the documentary series about insects narrated by John Shrapnel. Then it's Auntie Sporting Bloomers, a party political broadcast by the Conservative Party, the news, a repeat of Absolutely Fabulous, then the last in the series of Mistresses, The Woman Scorned, where Barbara Cartland and the Green Goddess talk about being shit on by their husbands. Followed by Question Time from Liverpool and the 1989 rom-com Happy Together. BBC Two kicks on with the current affairs show First Sight about dodgy landlords. Then Southern Eye talks to young Jewish people who aren't that arsed about their faith. 
Then it's the final episode of Parsons on Class, where Tony Parsons meets a middle-class family from Liverpool and ends by reckoning the middle class are dead good. Fuck off, Tony Parsons. You fucking twat. Top Gear reviews the HMC Mark V, a deliberate attempt to emulate the essence of Austin Healy 3000, and then... Fucking Top Gear. Then the documentary series Reputations looks at the dark side of wildlife icon Joy Adamson. After a repeat of whatever happened to the likely lads, it's that party political broadcast, news night, late review, the midnight hour with Trevor Phillips, and they go through the night with the open university. ITV runs the news magazine programme 3D, then a hen night is disrupted in the bill, then it's blues and twos, Taggart, that party political broadcast again, news at 10, regional news in your area, being there, the line, tales from the crypt, and then it's night time. Let's fret together. (laughs) Channel 4 broadcasts the slot, Africa Express, Food File, then Undercover Britain reports on the real Alvidezane pets as it follows British builders around Germany, the topical Westminster sitcom Annie's Bar, NYPD Blue, Whose Line Is It Anyway, Devil's Advocate, Dispatchers, the Sally Field drama Sybil, and the 1985 Timothy Dalton horror film The Doctor and the Devils. So, me boys, what are we talking about in the playground or the Melody Maker offices, which in a sense was a playground yeah. tomorrow. Um, I would think that immediately uh, the programme finished, having seen a top 10 countdown, I'd be pissed off at not seeing um, Mark Morrison's Return of the Mac and also Gabrielle's Give Me a Little More Time, which was a fantastic yeah. single. So you always get that element of here's what you could have won. But of what we did see, yes. I would imagine that in the playground of the 26th floor of King's Reach Tower, IPC HQ, um, and indeed... Uh, in the good mixer in uh, pub in London's fashionable Camden Town, uh, I would have been talking about. Did you see uh, our mates menswear on top of the pots last night? I may even have been slinging a friendly arm around the shoulder of menswear themselves, oh. like a disgusting fucking backslapping <laughs> um, London seedster that I was at the time. Um, oh. And I'd also have been saying, yeah, menswear on top of the pots last night. It's only a matter of time, right? Before uh, I don't know, uh, yeah. Orlando or Plastic Fantastic are on. Just, just watch, just watch. <laughs> I'd admit mainly talking, I think, probably in the smoking room of uh, the 26th floor. Uh, a bit of a mainly hatred, really. Mm. How much I hate garbage, how much I hate Oasis, Shed 7, Madonna and Steve Lamack and Joe Wiley. Mm. And the entire concept of living, to be honest with you, at that age. <laughs> um, but um, I would probably have been saying also in my snotty, elitist, wanker, 24-year-old thing of how Khalifs used to be good, <laughs> but have lost it. Um yeah, so it would have mainly been hatred. Hatred was a big part of the 90s, and it's underestimated. Anger is an energy, Neil. Absolutely. <laughs> what are we buying on Saturday? Genuinely, got to be honest, nothing. Mm. Yeah, um, obviously I didn't need to buy my records at that time, but um, had I needed to, I would have maybe bought the menswear single, which I think is really good. Uh, but yeah, um, it's slim pickings, isn't it? And what does this episode tell us about March of 1996? Um, I would say similar to a a lot of uh, um, uh, chart musics that um, the received wisdom about what certain era was like bears little or no relation to what it was actually like. Because, Mm. yes, you've got 
menswear shed seven and oasis uh crowbarred in there and uh, oasis twice into the same fucking show but yeah. if you look at the actual charts it's full of uh dance music that probably had way way more energy than what was pre- presented to us by mr black Seal. Mm. absolutely I think by March 1996, I mean, in terms of what it tells us about the wider times, it's the usual thing with an episode of Top of the Pops. It tells us very little about 1996 because it because it features bands and artists that only really occupy a tiny bit of what's going on. But I think even in this supposed golden age for TOTP, the writing is on the wall because fatally it has turned into a music show. And yeah. it, was always, it was always far, far more than that. Yeah, that's all it is now, isn't it? Hmm. Yeah, it's a music show with an obligation to to mention the charts. Yeah. 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 That's just it. like a news program has the obligation to mention the foot set. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And that, my dears, is the end of this episode of Chart Music. All I need to do now is the usual promotional flange, www.chart-music.co.uk, Facebook.com slash chart music podcast, Twitter Chart Music COTP Money Down the G String Patreon.com slash chart music. Thank you very much, Neil Kulkane. Stay the fuck away from me. <laughs> Take care of your send, Simon Price. Two meters, motherfuckers. Two meters. <laughs> stay home, stay safe, wash your hands, don't inject yourselves with domestos. My name's Al Needham, and I'm Dill Danding. <laughs> <laughs> Chart music. GreatBigOwl.com Hello, my darlings. It's me, Anna Mann, actress, singer, welder. Gotta have a backup. I've been in everything, my darlings, and I've been cut from most things. However, I will not be cut from one thing, and that is my own podcast, Talking to Actors with Anna Mann, where I meet those rarest of creatures, the actors. That's Talking to Actors. Look out for the new series starting soon on The Great Big Owl. We live in the countryside and we live in a barn conversion. It's somewhere that's kind of really free and very spacious. I really hate feeling claustrophobic and this is the exact opposite of that. We have a lot of parties here, a lot of socialising in the summer. It's really easy to bring a festival vibe to your house and that's what we do quite often when we have parties. So we get the lighting right, that's always really important with fairy lights absolutely everywhere as you can see. And candles as well, I've got lots of glass lanterns all over the place and they are in literally every corner. Um, I always struggle when it comes to windows and curtains and it's, I find it quite a challenge but this works really well. We love the light and the voils just soften the whole thing and it gives it that kind of free-flowing feeling and uh, just framed by the long curtains. So I think this works well and with the fairy lights you really do get that festival feel. We like to dress the table. There are so many things you can do. We have those big mason jars, fill them with punch, um, some with alcohol in for the adults and then obviously the ones for the kids as well so people can just help themselves. Get lots of mismatching fabrics, put them all over the table. You can get the jam jars with the handles, get some cool straws to serve up your drinks. Flowers, I think, are incredibly important. And you could just get milk bottle jars or just old um, mason jars, kilner jars. Uh, Stick loads of flowers, wildflowers all over the place, just from your garden. You don't have to go and buy flowers. Every festival, you have to have your marshmallows, which will be going outside and be put on the fire pit to be toasted very soon. You want to make it really comfortable. So you can have rugs, uh, you can have hay bales, get friendly with a local farmer and borrow some hay bales, big bean bags as well. We've even got a glitter ball in the background. So everything that makes it comfortable and interesting to look at. 
Another thing we like to do is to decorate the place so it reflects our style, so our musical taste, really. So we've got this big Bowie lightning flash here. And go into your garage and see what's there. We found a big old glitter ball, and it looks amazing. Oh, <laughs> 